Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College from the studios of KSPC. I'm Patty Bell. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're delighted to talk to Drew Gladney, professor of anthropology and chair of the anthropology department here at Pomona College. Welcome, Drew. You're a local boy who went away and came home. Um, tell us a little bit, little bit about your formative years. Uh, well, I went to Damien High School in Laverne, but I was born and raised in Pomona. And I think I'm the only faculty member that was actually born and raised in Pomona. Quite a few were born in Pomona Valley Municipal Hospital, which mm-hmm. was the only place you really could be born back then. Uh, most were raised elsewhere. Uh, Pomona was a great place to grow up. Uh, my junior high was one-third black, one-third Latino, one-third white. Uh, I'm proud to say I was elected as the student body president. All it was right. a three-year junior high. Uh, and I played football and ran track, uh, walked to school, lived right next door. Um, and it really was a great way in, in, to grow up. But we had significant racial and ethnic tensions mm-hmm. then. And both of my sisters and my older brother went to Pomona High School and where I should have gone and walked to high school or ridden my bike like they did. But we had a lot of riots then. Mm. And as luck would have it, I went to a high school play and was caught up in a race riot and got beaten up Mm. uh, almost to within an inch of my life. And because of that, my Catholic mother packed me off and sent me to Damien High School. Uh, which I'll never regret because the priest there forced me to learn Latin. Uh, and by then I had become a very devout Christian. I, had, I think through that experience, 14 years old, sort of near-death experience, uh, uh, just by being a white kid in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And uh, uh, But it really, I think, made me think seriously about life and death. And uh, I ended up becoming uh, quite devout as a young man, uh, but it was a kind of alternative uh, Jesus, people born again, Christianity. We met in a park in Covina and my older sisters uh, had gotten involved with it and they took me. And I think going to uh, a Catholic high school where I often argued with the priests about Christianity and and by then I'd moved pretty much into Protestant side of Christianity, uh, sharpened my wit Uh, made me interested, uh, like I said, some of the deeper questions of life uh, and found the priests there and some of the uh, non-clerical faculty uh, to be extremely, you know, devout and dedicated to learning. And that kind of set me on my path towards academia and scholarship uh, and eventually towards China. So you started your studies into religion. And then you transitioned into anthropology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a bit of a journey. Uh, I'm the only one in my family to go on in higher education. Um, My dad, actually, during World War II, uh, was a pilot. And he flew what is known as the hump Mm -hmm. from India to China. And uh, he flew the transport planes. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with stories about China. Um, but it was really the the religious side that got me interested in, I think, frontiers 
um, I got involved with this group of uh, very devout people. Uh, Christians who would travel the country in a rock bands. A lot of them were sort of recovering, recovered uh, drug addicts and gang mem members, gang bangers. Uh, and I was one of the youngest members of the community mm -hmm. and they sort of took me under their wing. Mm -hmm. And I was really fascinated with how religion could transform someone's life as it had transformed mine. Until then, I'd lived a pretty average, normal life, you know, sports, girls, everything else. But at the age of 14, I hadn't really done anything that had taken me <laughs> off the edge <laughs> like a lot of my later class yeah. members. So uh, this it really turned me around and made me start thinking about uh, scholarship, travel, uh, stories of the Bible, uh, and uh, the life of Jesus, of course, and the life of some of his followers was very inspiring for me. Uh, having said that, I have very little sort of formal engagement with religion today, except through teaching the anthropology of religion mm -hmm. uh, at Pomona. It's one of the courses I teach. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the hardest courses I teach because I went on to do my PhD after doing uh, full seminary uh, studies mm -hmm. after college, uh, where I fully intended to become some sort of social worker, missionary. I was very interested in social justice. Uh, Pomona First Baptist Church, where I ended up mm -hmm. on the corner of town and, and uh, Gary and, and Holt. Um, they uh, had a summer volunteer program, and through that, I washed cars and raised money to go to Hong Kong for a summer, where I taught guitar, English, and the Bible in that order. <laughs> uh, and at that time, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been on a, an airplane. Uh, mm. And uh, 17 years old, uh, walking the streets of Hong Kong, needless to say, it was an eye-opener. Yeah. Uh, there was still the bamboo curtain. Uh, and uh, you, 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 I was living with a refugee from China, a Baptist uh, minister, uh, and he sort of talked about the evils of communism, and he had literally swam out of China with tying basketballs under his arms. Mm -hmm. um, and it really opened my eyes to this larger world and with the stories of my dad about flying missions uh, over the hump, uh, during World War II, I think that sort of made me realize that China was a big and fascinating place, and right. I wanted to learn more about it. Yeah. Uh, after that, I went to a small liberal arts college in Santa Barbara, Westmont College, uh, Christian, ecumenical, evangelical uh, liberal arts school, and majored in religion and philosophy. Uh, you really couldn't do much Asian studies then. There was an oriental philosophy course that I found quite inspiring. But I was very much on the track of going into some kind of Christian service, social work. I was interested in Hong Kong. I had worked in uh, refugee camps for mostly Vietnam War, mm. Vietnamese, Chinese refugees who had mm -hmm. been brought to Hong Kong and fled to Hong Kong. And the Baptist Church was very involved in helping them get settled in Hong Kong and teaching them English. And I was inspired about uh, the importance of social work and um, giving your time and, and energy. And that really made me think of uh, how I could use my mind and time and, and background and uh, to make a change in the world and to help these people in some way so that I could.
So um, you had a successful career in Hawaii before coming to before coming to Pomona. Can you tell us about that and about how you came to be here? Yeah, well, Hawaii. Um, I was a professor at University of Hawaii in the Asian Studies Department uh, with a joint appointment in anthropology for 15 years. University of Hawaii in Manoa, Honolulu. Um, I w- by then had been very interested, of course, in Asian studies and China, and they have one of the largest Asian studies programs in the country. Um, but really, it had to do again with uh, sort of life circumstances. Uh, my first job out of uh, a postdoc at Harvard uh, was at USC, and I was teaching at USC, had bought a house about four blocks from campus, uh, and we were caught up in the middle of the Rodney King riots. Uh-huh. And of course, went through that horrendous moment in LA history, right in the center of it. And if not for my neighbors, mostly Latino neighbors, who we all came together as a neighborhood and kind of protected our own places, um, uh, you know, I, who knows what would have happened. It was a terrible, terrible moment for LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me personally, uh, it made me realize, you know, that um, uh, you really have to have community. You really have to uh, care for and know your neighbors yeah. uh, because when things fall apart, as we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus, uh, you, it's about trust. It's mm-hmm. about community. It's about uh, uh, pulling together uh, when the chips are down. Yeah. And uh, I experienced that. Uh, as luck would have it, however, um, on Saturday after the riots had begun on Wednesday, uh, when the city had finally been locked down by the Na- National Guard and um, there were half tracks on the street and uh, it was it was time to move on. And I had a conference in Honolulu. And I get to Honolulu. The dean there says, you know, you, the campus is closed at USC. You can't go back. Why don't you stay here for a week or so? And and in my condo on the beach. <laughs> and while you're there. Hard decision. Yeah, hard to tough decision. <laughs> and we were able to stay there um, uh, for a week or so. And uh, the dean got very interested in my work. I had helped him revise a chapter. By then, I'd been working in Central Asia, Western China, on the Silk Road. And uh, through that revision of work with him on his book, he encouraged me to apply for a job there. Uh, I was on my way to Istanbul on a Fulbright scholarship. And while in Istanbul, uh, I think back then a fax came through. We were just doing email at the start of email, inviting me to come to Honolulu in the middle of winter and um, an interview for this position. Uh, so after the year in Istanbul, I went straight to Honolulu, and fully intending to spend only one or two years there and come back to USC. Uh, but uh, being that close to Asia and being in the middle of the Pacific and having learned to surf while I was in high school, <laughs> uh, there were a lot of attractions and um, uh, decided to stay there. Uh, I was involved with a research group at the East West Center in mm-hmm. Honolulu, a federally funded institution, and really enjoyed uh, my work there. How could I leave Honolulu uh-huh. uh, to come to Pomona, back where I grew up? Uh, 
that part wasn't difficult. I always had fond memories of my childhood here. I still have uh, extended family in the area. Um, and I love this, uh, the climate here, even over Hawaii. I love seasons. I had begun to miss uh, fall and, and, mm -hmm. and the snow in the winter. Um, and so I uh, was very intrigued when a letter came through and encouraged me uh, to consider uh, being uh, recruited to Pomona uh, at, to help run the uh, Pacific Basin Institute at that time. So through the search firm and all that, I came out and really rediscovered this area because mm -hmm. when I had left for college to Santa Barbara, I had never really come back. My parents retired to the Central Coast, to San Luis Obispo. And so I'd rarely revisited this area and had lost touch with a lot of extended family. And I've enjoyed coming back and reconnecting uh, with uh, high school classmates. Uh, um, also, really, it was family. Most of my family are on the West Coast. Um, uh, unfortunately, both my parents passed away the year I moved here. Um, but my daughter was born here, and uh, it was tough to say goodbye to Hawaii. I have deep ties there, um, but I, I really don't... Uh, miss the fact that you are pretty isolated there, uh, right. pretty far uh, from anywhere. It's close to Asia in some ways, but far in terms of cost of living and expenses and travel. Um, and California is becoming much more diverse mm -hmm. ethnically, and particularly the Asian community, the Chinese community is growing leaps and bounds. So I don't feel that far from Asia here. Uh, and um, really have enjoyed uh, being closer to uh, the, what's happening in the U.S. mainland. Hawaii is uh, blissfully far from that, uh, but also quite engaged in the Pacific theater. Uh, and I, while I was in Hawaii, I uh, took a position with the Asia Pacific Center, it's now the Inouye Center, Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies, which is under the US military. And because of my father's experience, I was very curious and interested in that whole history of US engagement in the Asia Pacific, particularly since World War II. Mm -hmm. And have continued to do work on that. Right now I'm working on a large project about uh, the hump flyers in China mm -hmm. and in Asia. Um, and looking at social memory and how that period is is remembered, uh, that that greatest generation is almost no longer with us, um, and so it's kind of a salvage history of that period. Um, have done some field work in so Southwest China and Southeast Asia on this uh, topic. Uh, the flying tigers and the hump flyers are, are dearly remembered in China kind of represents a high point of U.S.-China relations that uh, seems like a very distant memory today, um, but one I think worth recovering and exploring. Drew, you mentioned the Silk Road a little earlier, um, and you specialize in the people, the cultures, and the politics along the Silk Road. What countries are we talking about when we you mentioned Silk Road, and um, what got you interested in that area? 
Well, as you know, traditional anthropologists tend to study one village, one people, one tribe, one community. Um, that's changed dramatically since I went into anthropology. Mm -hmm. Again, never thinking I was going to do anthropology. Uh, but I think that experience in Hong Kong made me realize that I didn't want to spend my life in a library or in a church. <laughs> I wanted to get out <laughs> and, and try to understand what was going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so I, when I went off to graduate school at University of Washington, Seattle, uh, I studied Mandarin Chinese uh, and had an opportunity to go to Peking University uh, in the early 80s when there were very few Westerners there. Um, and while I was at Beida, at Beijing University, um, I got interested in the local community and discovered there was a mosque right off campus. Had never known, having having had to study China and and being very interested in China, I had never learned about Muslims in China. Mm -hmm. um, and sought permission to do research on that community and China's policy towards minorities. And at that point, China was very welcoming uh, mm. to host my research. I was I'm very grateful, eternally grateful uh, to my Chinese colleagues uh, who hosted me, who at great risk to themselves because U.S.-China relations were, were just reopening, really, um, in the early 80s. So I went back to China with full permission to study a urban Muslim minority community in Beijing City. Um, about almost 200,000 Muslims at that time in Beijing City, something nobody really knew about. Mm -hmm. uh, numerous mosques that I was allowed to visit. While there, uh, the Muslims said, well, if you really want to understand our history, you have to go west, young man. <laughs> and uh, put me on a bus and then on a train and eventually on planes following the Silk Road and the, the trade routes where Muslims had come into China, probably their, their first real diasporic community. And the original Chinese Muslims that I had studied in are known as the Hui people, which was a generic term for all Muslims in China. But under the communist socialist policy of recognizing certain nationalities, some of which through the religious background uh, have recognition as a separate uh, formally recognized minority nationality. Ten Muslim groups in China, the largest are known as the Hui. They're very diverse. They speak numerous Chinese languages. They're spread out all over the country. And that kind of gave me a passport to travel. Um, so I went to Tibet to study Muslims in Tibet. Uh, Hainan Island off the southeast coast of China. Um, back to Hong Kong numerous times. Uh, this large Muslim community there. So during the course of those travels, I ended up in the far western corner of China, this region known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, where there are Turkic-speaking Muslims known as the Uyghur. Fascinating history, very different than the Hui, having lived in far west China, only really recently incorporated in China proper. Very welcoming, very fascinating, and decided that to really understand the history of Islam in China and the history of the Silk Road, I had to move in that direction. And so began learning Turkish, finished my PhD, mostly written about the Hui and the, my research all over China on that community. Um, 
and was fortunate enough to get a postdoc to go to Harvard and do Turkic languages, look at nomadic peoples, Central Asian studies, uh, and continue studying Muslim minority communities, uh, particularly in South Central Asia, Eurasia. And of course, learning Turkish, the best place to study Turkish at the time was Istanbul. So I ended up in Istanbul. <laughs> Uh, and so now as an anthropologist, I say the, you know, my village extends from Beijing to Istanbul <laughs> uh, and have had the opportunity to travel in many of the what are now known as the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. Spent a lot of time in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, some Uzbekistan, mostly the Turkic speaking parts of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. So um, this is kind of a detail that I happen to notice, and I'm just curious about. You, you've said that you prefer the term Muslim Chinese to Chinese Muslim. <laughs> um, why, tell us about that. Well, when I began to study the Muslims in China, um, I started with this group known as the Hui, and there was very little literature about them. The literature that was out there had portrayed them in one of two ways. Either they were foreign Muslim minority who were very um, isolated from Chinese society, antagonistic to integration, uh, ready to rise in jihad at, at, the <laughs> at any moment, and uh, a threat to the integrity of Chinese society and isolated for almost 1,200 years. Um, the other side was the extreme opposite view, <laughs> was that they were Chinese Muslims. They had totally assimilated to Chinese society. That any out, you know, side community that came into China, groups like the Manchu or the Mongols, they were literally devoured by Chinese culture and society and were not Muslim at all. They were completely assimilated, which I think, you know, did violence to their own integrity as a people who had managed to survive um, very diverse ways, despite some very discriminatory policies, which now we see very, very vividly. Um, so I was looking at both extremes and trying to figure out a way to communicate that diversity uh, among this very complicated, very interesting community. So I thought by calling them Chinese Muslims, uh, it's sort of, the emphasis was on China, of course, but it, it kind of called into doubt their own integrity as, as a Muslim minority. So by just reversing that, Muslim Chinese, um, sort of like Asian Americans, Latino Americans, African Americans, it tried to give power and emphasis to their own sense of self and community. Mm -hmm. As an outsider, as a non-Muslim, I could never, you know, understand how they managed to do that. But I had great respect for the fact that uh, through, for example, dietary uh, habits, they, they didn't eat pork. In China, if you've traveled to China, <laughs> how do you avoid pork? <laughs> and for many generations, Chinese themselves could understand that. These people were very strange. Uh, like vegans today, uh, some families uh, find that hard to understand. Uh, so uh, for the Muslims in China, this was uh, a part of their own uh, experience. And I tried to um, describe that as best as I could. Um, 
so this is a characteristics of Muslim societies keeping halal. Uh, in Chinese, they, the term is qingzhen, which means pure and true is their interpretation of halal. And that was the title of my dissertation. Kind of got me interested in food culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I myself gave up pork for 20 years to be able to do this research uh, and spent a lot of time in noodle restaurants <laughs> and kind of really ate my way across the Silk Road. Uh, lucky for me, it's fantastic food. Doesn't sound bad to me. Uh, and uh, that kind of northern wheat culture, noodles, uh, dumplings. Uh, uh, so this was very much part of their society. And to gain access to that community, to understand them, I really tried to walk to some extent in their shoes. Uh, of course, never even coming close, but uh, from a, for a small kid in Pomona, uh, wandering across Central Asia, uh, spending time mostly with Muslims, uh, uh, it, it was really, uh, for me, uh, a, a wonderful time in my life uh, to push myself. Uh, it was never easy. It was always very, very complicated. Uh, being an American, um, for many of them, the first they'd ever encountered, having that long legacy of U.S.-China relations, being a non-Muslim, being a white male uh, in somewhat closed society, not as much as in the Middle East, um, and yet uh, being warmly welcomed almost everywhere I went. That started to change, of course, dramatically after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Mm and my research was heavily influenced by that period. Not only were Muslims again in China suspected mm -hmm. of this history, but also they were marginalized uh, uh, like never before. Um, so after, actually I was in China uh, during 9-11, I was uh, near the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan mm -hmm. in this southern corner of this region known as Xinjiang uh, in this area called Tashkurgan where there's a Tajik minority uh, Muslim nationality. Um, and at that point, it was quite open. There was a German wine touring group coming through the area where I was doing research. Um, and I was thinking about writing about wine culture along the Silk Road in this area, which is now is booming, uh, China's wine industry. Uh, but at the time, uh, nobody anticipated what was about to happen yeah. with the war in, Af in, in Iraq and, uh, and occupation of Afghanistan right on the border of China. China was caught up in that. Um, and they had been having tensions uh, and issues with the Uyghur uh, Muslim minority in Xinjiang, known as the Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uyghurs themselves refer to this region as Eastern Turkestan. Yeah. And being an anthropologist, having begun to learn their language, they speak a Turkic, a branch of Turkish, early branch, Uyghur. Uh, a long, uh, amazing, uh, illustrious history along the Silk Road, having to help bring Buddhism to China. They are now, they uh, converted to Islam, all Muslim, and as a minority, being suspect and accused of separatism and terrorism, not unlike Tibetans and their loyalty to the Dalai Lama, 
But of course, for the Uyghurs, there is no Dalai Lama. There's no single leader. There's no single agenda. Uh, but they mostly uh, have a very strong sense of land, selfhood, history, um, and, and authenticity uh, that has been much more difficult to integrate into China's policy. So since 9-11, uh, there have been growing and significant tensions in the region. And uh, being one of several scholars uh, very concerned about the region, uh, we wrote some very critical pieces about the government's policy and how it was affecting them and never supporting independence or separatism of course, not supporting radical Islam or jihad, but as non-Muslim, non-local scholars, we felt a duty to try to give voice to some of these complaints that the Uyghurs themselves had a hard time communicating to the outside world. That got us, of course, in trouble with the Chinese government. And I, my name ended up on a blacklist with about 16 other scholars. You can Google us as the the Xinjiang 13, um, <laughs> and made it very almost nearly impossible for us to go back to China. I have not been back to the region since 2004. Okay. Uh, I have been able to go back to China a few times, but not like that, and have not been able to do that kind of field research um, ever again, perhaps. Um, I think it's unfortunate because I love the region. I love uh, going to China. I love interacting. Uh, and doing ethnography, that's the hallmark of, of anthropology, in my opinion. Um, and I've had to shift my research. It's one of the reasons I ended up going to Central Asia a lot, mm -hmm. uh, increasingly more to Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. to look at Muslim minority communities as well as the history and politics of those regions, since I could not go to China. Yeah. Drew, but you mentioned it a little bit, but I'm going to ask you a little more specific on you. You've you've been very outspoken about the treatment of Muslims in China, and you even had an opportunity to testify in Congress before uh, about the subject. Can you give us a little history on that and uh, what's going on today? Yeah, I mean, as a uh, U.S. citizen, I feel it's my duty to use my experience in scholarship uh, and make my opinion known, uh, uh, particularly with a group of people that don't have a voice and where U.S. policy has played a very important role in their treatment. Mm -hmm. um, there was a group that is accused of being a terrorist organization uh, that the U.S. supported China's claim in this. Because of that, um, 21 Uyghurs were taken to Guantanamo Bay and incarcerated. Uh, for most of them over 10, 15 years. Uh, they've all been released now, but nevertheless, they were caught up in this U.S. Uh, war on terror. Uh, most of us who studied the issue thought unjustifiably so. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the issue is complicated. I would say in the last five to 10 years, we've seen increasing incidents of uh, Xinjiang-related terrorism, Uyghur-related terrorism. We know there are Uyghurs who have now fought with ISIS. So the situation, like I said, is extremely complicated. However, at the beginning of all of this, uh, most of us thought the Uyghurs were primarily concerned about their own civil rights, sovereignty, 
human rights treatment. I had written that Chinese policy towards minorities, by and large, was pretty progressive in a sense that they, uh, in their constitution, they recognize ethnic minorities, gave them autonomy, gave them authority, gave them legal rights for bilingual education, for example, unlike mm. the United States. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and uh, China supported the study of these languages. Um, uh, they had special privileges. Uh, many of them were not subject to the one-child policy. Mm. They were given educational opportunities, scholarships, um, and the government invested heavily in these regions. However, it's, it's impossible to know what was extracted from the regions to do this. Yeah. And we were always suggesting these local communities should have a stronger voice in their own affairs. Now, having said that, I think Americans are more aware of the situation in Tibet and increasingly Xinjiang among the Uyghurs than other minority communities in China who have actually done pretty good hmm. in this uh, in this policy where they've had a more authority and have benefited uh, through Chinese education. And with the rise of China, economically and other ways, uh, they have, many of these communities have done pretty good uh, and are pretty, very supportive. But other groups like the Uyghurs, the Inner Mongolians, the Mongolians in Inner Mongolia, the Tibetans, who've had a long history and a memory of separate governments, uh, independence. Some of them had governments that recognized internationally, like the Tibetan government, um, signed treaties with the early communist government. So they have this history and, and memory of sovereignty uh, and, and uh, identity that is Im impossible to erase. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do you integrate them into a, uh, uh, a rising nation state? I, I teach a course on nationalism and ethnicity in Asia. And I talk about how do you accommodate this sort of groups that have been recognized and given formal authority by the government, but uh, are not at all allowed to consider independence. Whereas right across the border in the former Soviet Union, we see now there is a Kazakhstan, there is a Uzbekistan. Uh, so many Uyghurs and Tibetans look to that and say, you know, now it's our turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you do that? How do you deal with that as a, as a government? Um, the United States doesn't have a very good history of this either. So I don't think we're in any position to judge. But as an anthropologist, I feel that one of the things I can do is try to express opinions that I've heard uh, in ways, particularly in our government, uh, where it affects our policy. And I feel a responsibility uh, to do that even when it's very critical of the U.S. government. Interestingly enough, now that we're on the subject, uh, the issue of the Uyghur in China, the Uyghurs, uh, is probably one of the few bipartisan issues that are supported by both sides of the aisle today. Um, and Marco Rubio signed a bill uh, supporting the Uyghurs that was co-sponsored by several uh, Democrats. And um, so the Uyghurs have a sort of sense of hope about the future, mm -hmm. particularly in the US. Uh, there, many of them are very active. Some of the largest Uyghur organizations are based in the United States now mm -hmm. in DC, also in Germany and Canada and Australia. Um, 
But of course, the situation in their region is is extremely dire. Uh, the government has really stepped up its its um, level of of control and restraint through this uh, what they call education reeducation centers. Most scholars call them gulags, concentration camps, uh, mainly because nobody's allowed in and people go in there and never come out, um, and they've cut off communication. A really draconian um, uh, movement that we've seen really in the government's response to the coronavirus. I mean, an autocratic system like China, uh, they can close off a city. Uh, they can uh, round up a million, up to three million of the Uyghurs, up to 30% of their entire population. We're talking about only about 10 million people here in Western China, maybe up to three million incarcerated. Hmm. Only a government like China could do this. I think it's, as someone who's lived and traveled in the area, has tried to learn the language, um, I feel it's my duty to sort of speak out about that and say, uh, I feel they're creating a worse situation for the future uh, than they've ever had in the past, uh, alienation and discrimination. Um, because the Uyghurs do have a long history. They have a great sense of self and pride of this language, culture, music, religion. Um, and somehow the government needs to uh, reassess this policy. The U.S. certainly has a role. How much of a role is, is, is questionable these days. Uh, clearly, the rise of China has changed the map, has changed the world. And the U.S., I don't feel, is responding appropriately mm -hmm. to that changed situation. Uh, it's something that is, uh, as a professor, is, is, is fascinating because, mm -hmm. of course, students are very engaged, uh, very glued to the headlines and their Twitter feeds, and are much more aware of this contemporary situation uh, than their predecessors. Mm -hmm. And for me, being in the classroom, it's thrilling uh, to look at these issues with them and try to set them in a larger, broader, more historical context. So you've also um, done work on what's called China's New Silk Road. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume that has something to do with not being able to go back to some of the places you used to be able to go to. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, can you tell us about that? What does that mean, the new Silk Road? Yeah, this is part of uh, the president of China, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. goes under various names, none of them very easily digested. <laughs> uh, but basically, you can think of it as part of global China. Mm -hmm. And China's uh, reaching out particularly to garner resources. Um, China is, has a large population, but very little in terms of natural resources, arable land, water, energy resources, mineral resources. But as uh, uh, really the manufacturer for the world, it has tremendous economic clout. And Xi Jinping has sought to reach out to other regions and begin to build China's influence um, and market in the world, particularly markets for China's goods uh, in these developing economies. So on the one hand, I think it's important to note that China is investing in infrastructure. The Belt and Road Initiative, as it suggests, is an infrastructure initiative. Um, 
a lot of 20th century infrastructure, rail, um, air, ocean, shipping, but also 21st century digital infrastructure. Um, we think of Huawei and 5G. Uh, this is why the government is in extremely invested in these initiatives because it sees a way for China to extend its influence. Of course, that makes us nervous, as we should be. Um, and I think historically, as a, a scholar of the Silk Road, as someone's lived and traveled and read most of my life about that region, I personally don't think China is interested in expanding its territory. I think it has its hands full with its own territory <laughs> uh, and governing uh, a, a billion population. Uh, but on the other hand, China needs resources, so it wants to extend its economic influence far beyond China, especially into Europe, which is one of its major markets. So China has invested heavily in areas that the West has not, particularly Central Asia, South, uh, East Asia, I mean Eastern Europe, and Southeast Asia, Burma, for example, uh, Pakistan, having warm water ports for its increasingly blue navy. Uh, of course, there's going to be conflicts with the U.S. influence in the region. My hope is that we can begin to deal with these in a peaceful and cooperative manner. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be good for everyone, particularly addressing uh, issues and problems that confront us and our humanity, such as climate change, um, such as viruses uh, and, and diseases that confront us as humans, not as Chinese or as American Westerners, etc. Only through cooperation um, and dialogue, uh, which is the hallmark of the Silk Road. When we think of the Silk Road, it's a great metaphor uh, for exchange and trade and interaction and uh, the mutual uh, interfacing of cultures and peoples. Um, it's not always been a, a peaceful Silk Road. There's been a lot of speed bumps along the way. Uh, but I think by and large, uh, my view is that uh, it's it's a great metaphor for the need to communicate, to keep dialogue open, to do exchange, to learn about each other. Mm -hmm. um, and where I learned most about the peoples on the Silk Road were in the marketplaces and the restaurants, where you, you exchanged goods and commodities and ideas. Um, and to me, China's new Silk Road, the upside of it is this more... Um, uh, I would say uh, this greater opportunity for exchange and interaction. The downside, there's a lot of downsides. And of course, uh, populism uh, supports walls and barriers and nationalism and closing the barricades and buttoning down. Uh, and I find that that's, you know, uh, the trend today. Uh, the problem with something like a coronavirus is everyone blames the other guy and the outsider. Um, I think only through cooperation and uh, and integrated work together can we solve these problems that face our common humanity, um, such as climate change, such as disease. And so populism, I think, is uh, antithetical to that effort to to really save our planet 
and to save our species. Um, and it's becoming really an existential threat to all of us as humans, uh, these kinds of issues. So populism is not, in my way, the way I teach an anthropology of globalization course. Uh, we don't think of anthropologists as doing globalization so much. But really, the world has become a much smaller place. And the Silk Road was uh, a place where I learned that uh, crossing borders, uh, expanding your understanding of other societies and cultures um, is a, a great space, an integrated space, a, a well-traveled space to explore uh, what it's like for us as humans to not only travel the world, but also interstellar travel now. This has become, some anthropologists have looked at this, what's that going to mean for our species? Mm -hmm. um, looking at Pacific voyaging, for example, South Pacific Islanders, discovery of Hawaii, et cetera, uh, navigation, wayfaring. Um, I think anthropologists have still a lot to say about that. Uh, though our little tiny villages and cultures have been globalized like never before, Nevertheless, uh, we as humans uh, still have a sense of place. I'm still a Pomona boy. Uh, I still like my In-N-Out burgers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I have a very complicated relationship with the Dodgers. But uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, local teams uh, really, I think, root us as humans into our communities. But... Today, we really also have to have branches into the outer uh, stratosphere. And anthropology is one way to begin to look at those connections. Particularly, one thing anthropologists have always been interested in is in genealogy and ancestry, where we came from. Um, and I myself have a history of, uh, of family genealogy coming from Ireland, uh, family genealogy and looking at that migration to a new land, a new mm -hmm. frontier. Um, I came, came over in the 1760s. Uh, uh, several brothers and their uh, widowed mother, King George III Land Grant, have a family cemetery in Winsboro, South Carolina. So all of that... Um, roots me in a kind of history, but it's a it's also a colonial history that is implicated in uh, the expansion into the New World and the Americas and the devastation that that wrought to the native peoples here. And I think as humans, we have to learn our history, mm -hmm. but also bear responsibility for that history. And that's a that's a journey that we we all need to take in order for our species to survive. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. <laughs> it's kind of a dour <laughs> note. <laughs> well, well, we can ask you about SARS, but I think this is a better ending note. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking with Professor of Anthropology, Drew Gladney. Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.